Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. Today I thought I should talk about a little bit about caste and some of the similarities and differences between Nazi Germany and the Jim Crow South in the United States. And the reason why these two are comparable, because I know some of you may be thinking, there's no way it was the same. Actually, it was. So the Nazis actually got a lot of their framework for how to classify who would be a part of the superior caste, which would be in, you know, from their point of view, the Aryans and how they would manage the non-Aryans when it came to restrictions and access privileges and categorizations and justifications for how they were setting up, you know, the Third Reich. So what I wanted to talk about is that most of you generally know about you know, Nazi Germany. Most of us in American public schools learn about it to some extent, usually in 10th or 11th grade, and then we may hear about it a little bit later. But I think it's important to note that, like I said, the U.S. South, Jim Crow, you know, segregation, de jure and de facto segregation really was an inspiration for a lot of the Nazi officials who were tasked with, again, creating this framework for how they would run their regime. So it's always interesting because I I think a lot of people don't necessarily know the types of rules that were in the Jim Crow South, especially if we grew up here in California. We generally know about like segregated schools, segregated water fountains, but there were some things that are very interesting. So one of the things that was in the U.S. South was that, and I shouldn't say the South, right? Because of course, the Western and Northern states practiced de facto segregation, meaning that it wasn't always a law like in Jim Crow that was within the state, but it was still commonly practiced and nobody was stopping these things from happening, even though they're technically federally unconstitutional. So when it came to segregation, you had segregated jails, you had segregated barbershops, you could not, like a black barber could not like cut the hair of a white woman, for example. They couldn't, they meaning the two racial groups, and I mean by that like white and then everybody else lumped together as, you know, colored, quote unquote, couldn't drink in the same establishments. You already know that like they weren't legally allowed to get married in many instances or engage in sex with each other. These people also, if they were blind, they were to be housed in separate facilities. And it's like, you think, okay, how do they know what their race is, right? If they're blind, but they would, you know, state institutions in this matter were segregated. And when it comes to Nazi Germany, you know, in Berlin in June 1934, this is when they're setting that framework of, okay, let's look at what the other Western nations are doing and use that as our, you know, starting point, right? And talk about what we think they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, or, you know, just how we can implement it to our population of people. Now, I have mentioned in a previous podcast, I called it Hitler's Black Victims. It's the title of a book by Clarence Lusane. There were Afro-Germans, just like there are African-Americans. Blackness is a race, not a nationality. So Germany being a 
you know, diverse country and an imperialist country, there were people who had immigrated to Germany, had families, and their children grew up as regular German citizens who happened to be black. So they're going to be affected by a lot of this as well. Now, Germany had already understood that the United States was practicing eugenics. And with that being what's called race purity, the idea that, you know, certain groups of people are inherently more intelligent, more capable, more able-bodied to lead, and they're more fit to lead and to rule and to be in charge. And so that's the whole premise of Jim Crow is that, non-white peoples are to be subjugated and black descendants of slaves are to be extremely subjugated and at the bottom of the caste ladder. Now, there's a very important U.S. eugenicist named Madison Grant, and he was from New York. And I bring him up because his, you know, close constituents included two presidents, so Theodore Roosevelt and Herbert Hoover. But a lot of that racial supremacy that he was promoting and of course was like talking to two presidents about, which meant, which is very important for, again, like people who were excluded from like the things that America was offering white citizens in the 1920s, 30s and 40s and so on and so forth into the next few decades. But the Nazi party really took what Madison Grant was doing, like I said, and applied it to them. But even sometimes they found that it was too much. And that's one of the things I think that's interesting. And what I mean by that is that the Nazis were thinking about, okay, how far into the racial purity can we go? Because they understood that they had a people in Germany who were a mixed race, or for example, who were non-white, non-Aryan, or in the case of anti-Semitism, had relatives that were, you know, very recent who were either a part of the cultural lineage of being Jewish or the religious affiliation of being Jewish. And so then in the case of the history of many of the English colonies in the New World, in the Western Hemisphere, they practiced the one-drop rule. So for those of you not familiar, the one-drop rule in in practice means that if you have for the part from excuse me the point of view of like a white person in the new world if you have had anybody in your family who's ever been non-white you are not legally allowed to consider or register yourself or occupy that racial sphere so even if you are phenotypically white if you have, say, like a great-great-great-grandparent who was one-fourth black or a great-great-great-grandparent who was half-native, like, you're not allowed to classify yourself as a white person because the one-drop rule means that, like, once it's in your cup, so to speak, once you have, like, one drop of that other ethnic or, you know, cultural DNA, you're no longer a pure white person. And a lot of this has to do with purity, right? And the perceived purity of European heritage. And when it comes to a caste system and the way that the Nazis were, you know, looking up how we organized caste here in the United States, they understand that, you know, it's going to shape every part of your life. 
And like I was saying, even they thought that that one drop rule, they as in the Nazis thought that that one drop rule was actually too far, that it was taking it too far. Because again, like I said, they had been allowing people in the German colonies um, around the world and also there at home in Germany to intermarry with people who would have now been considered non-Aryans. But a lot of the same, well, I mean, I guess that's the whole point of the podcast. A lot of the same things that were happening in the Jim Crow South were happening in Nazi-occupied Germany and their territories. Um, For example, with the whole thing with purity, right, like many of you know that like swimming pools were segregated because the whole idea was that white people shouldn't have to deal with having any type of contact with water that has been in contact with black people because it would taint their purity. And if you're familiar with like the way caste has worked historically in in India for a very long time, it was the same way. Like the Dalits, I think is what they're called, or sometimes you may hear them referred to as the untouchables. They weren't allowed to like be within so many feet of people of the upper caste because the idea is that like their presence poisons the environment of the people who are above them in caste. And so it's the same thing with regard to the pools in Jim Crow, in the Jim Crow South, or even in the de facto segregated spaces in the North or Western states, right? That didn't have like a a sign that said, this is the colored part of the beach, or this is the white part of the beach or whatever, but that actively practiced those things. And so when you think about just water, like we think about water as a cleansing tool, right? Um, but it's really interesting how, like I said, like people aren't allowed to share something that's supposed to be cleansing for everybody, right? That they're not supposed to share any water spaces. And some of you are familiar with like things like segregated water fountains, but before they had built the water fountains for non-whites, they actually made like people drink out of horse troughs. And I think a lot of people, I think that's part of the problem when we study history and when we, and I'll say when we study history light, right, like in high school, when we talk about things like this, I don't think people fully understand the severity of what was going on because it's very easy for someone to say, oh, well, there's two water fountains. One says one and one says the other, but there's two water fountains. But it's completely different when you understand that before they had the water fountains, they had to drink out of animal troughs. And then the fountains that were for the non-whites weren't even cleaned and maintained properly so that they could be equal, quote unquote, separate but equal. It was never that way. And something that I've talked about in a previous podcast, um, I called it clean girls and hot Cheetos or hot Cheetos and clean girls. But I was talking about how this whole clean girl aesthetic, right? Once again, clean, right? That now that white women are occupying these cultural spaces and this look that has been usually used by women of color as a large umbrella group, predominantly black and brown women, now it's, they get their own classification as clean. That's still part of what I'm talking about here. It just, it, it's a, it's applicable, even though it kind of seems like maybe it wouldn't have been like an immediate connection. But James Baldwin talks about that same purity in one of his debates that he has given before. And um, if you've seen the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, he talks about that as well, that, you know, white society as a, you know, as a um, 
overarching institutional system created the ideas of whiteness as pure and blackness as tainted. And they projected the very worst things about themselves as a group of people onto black people. So they wouldn't have to deal with it in their own communities. And it has been causing mayhem ever since. And we see the effects of that happening today. Um, You have, you know, if you're projecting on that black people are rapists and murderers and they can't be trusted and they're dangerous. And it's like, okay, there are people within any racial population who are those things, right? But historically speaking, (laughs) black people have not done that to other groups in mass. It has not happened. So again, it's a projection onto other people. The Nazis used those same projection tools onto their population. And for example, they didn't allow Jewish people to go on the beach. So again, they're taking the same ideology from Jim Crow and applying it into Nazi Germany. They didn't allow these people in the pools anymore. They weren't allowed to go to public spaces except on certain days of the week. So I've often used this analogy that when you make something acceptable for one group of people, like the, that you know, somehow treating them as if they're subhuman, and that's actually the words that the Germans in um, in German, the Nazis, excuse me, in German would, um, I forgot, I think it's Untermenschen. I'm not exactly sure. But it basically comes down to like, like under men, like subhuman people. If it's if you make it okay and justifiable to treat people subhuman, then all it does is cause a ripple effect where it will eventually affect more people. So because these things were acceptable in the United States with the people who were the descendants of the enslaved population, it was then acceptable in the U.S. to treat brown people like that and then yellow people like that and then native people like that. And in this case, it spread outside of the U.S. and went to another regime that was trying to actively use those same things under their population. And they just, you know, copy pasted the rules for their population of people. Again, understand that there were Asians and black people in Germany who were German citizens, had been born there, raised there, lived there forever, but also the people who were technically, right, like, and that's weird. I don't, I guess at that time they didn't consider like Jewish people to be white, but, um, and even like the concept of whiteness doesn't mean the same thing in Europe as it does in the United States and in the Western Hemisphere, which is a whole different podcast episode. But, you know, it's used to, take it beyond just skin color, right? Something that is a visible marker of, you know, the way caste works in a lot of these nations. And a lot of similarities, there's a lot of similarities between India and the United States in that matter. And, you know, something else that's very interesting is that Nazi Germany, like the officials who were creating all these rules, they are on record as saying that they were completely surprised and in awe at the fact that the United States was able to maintain this like persona of innocence, even though they were committing all these human rights atrocities. So these Nazi officials, they knew that this was, you know, very much a human rights violation, like to restrict people for any arbitrary thing, knowing that they're human beings and to prevent them from having full access to their nationalism, to their citizenship, etc. They knew that it was that they were applying it was inhumane and that its application in the West, in the United States in this case, was in inhumane. 
but they were fascinated with the fact that the United States really just eschewed that um, reputation that people weren't looking at the United States and saying, well, how terrible that they're treating this population of American citizens like this, that they're treating people this badly. And again, using that one drop rule as justification for why they're allowed to and the things that they were relegating people to in the caste system that they were creating in the South, in the West, and in the North, but still having this sterling reputation with the rest of the world as if America was just this upstanding democracy and it's the land of opportunity. And like the Nazis were like, absolutely not. But that's one of the things they also wanted to take advantage of, right? They wanted people, they wanted their peers to look at them, their their peers being the other Western countries, to look at them and say, look how great they're doing. Look at how advanced their civilization is look how look what great work the third reich is doing and that partially did happen so the berlin olympics well excuse me the olympics were held in berlin in i think 1936 I'm trying to think, i'm pretty sure it was 1936 or 1934 i can't remember but the point is that you know they had the olympics there in berlin and when you look at the tourist videos from the time that were being made by u.s production companies about the olympics in germany you know they're like oh yeah you know this nation you know all this great stuff and all these people are talking about how well they're being treated etc and of course we know that they were already instilling all of those same human rights limitations on their population based on religion race etc but they took all those signs down because they knew they had visitors coming right they didn't want it to be they didn't want it in the photos so to speak that the since the world was coming to berlin for the olympic games but also something else that's very important is that because of how terrible germany had taken a turn after world war one because i mean 90 percent of the war is blamed on germany like 90 percent of world war one they had a complete upheaval. And so really them getting the Olympic Games in Berlin for that Olympic year was a big deal because for all intents and purposes, people thought like, oh, well, you know, Hitler's doing a great job, right? I mean, look at how much the economy's turned around. People aren't burning money to stay warm because inflation's so bad anymore. Like the country is stabilizing itself and everyone has a job who wants one. And on the on the surface, it all looked like it was much, much better. And you know, taking into consideration that Hitler had been named Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1936 is also very important because it, it made it look like Germany was back. I mean, if you take, I think I mentioned, if you get the chance to take a German history class, I would totally recommend it. They have a long, proud heritage, but just it looked like as bad as it was in Germany after World War One, it looked like they had really gotten themselves together and had done like a quick turnaround and were just back, that they were back and better than ever. But in reality, the United States knew what was going on, and I'm sure other nations knew how they were achieving that, right? It was based on exclusion. But then at that point, what right does the United States have to get involved at that point? I mean, we were already militarily practicing isolationism, so we were not getting involved in anything that was going on in Europe, as I mentioned with the Monroe Doctrine a couple podcasts ago. And... It just wasn't our concern, but our economy was built on that same exclusion. So it would have been like the the pot calling the kettle black. Like we can't condemn them for their fascism when we're doing the same fascist things here. Now, I'm not saying it's an equivalent, right? Because of course, we know that 
the Holocaust and something like it did not happen in the United States, right? That's something that happened in Nazi-controlled, their Nazi-controlled territories within Germany and Austria. But the point is, is that the U.S. never took it that far, but it has the same framework of exclusion and that they're building their economy on the exclusion of people who are seen as the outsiders, that who aren't allowed to benefit from it, even though they're citizens of that country. And just like with Jim Crow, the Nazis made it very difficult for people to leave. So on one hand, they're saying, well, you know, you're a non-Aryan and you're a burden to us and, you know, you shouldn't be here. But on the other hand, they're not letting these people leave. They're stopping them from leaving because they're coming up with reasons to tax them all this money, saying you have to pay your taxes for next year and advance and you know like of course immigration quotas were were very much in effect at that time so these people couldn't just you know pick up and leave they couldn't just get on a plane anymore because that era had kind of ended by then but they couldn't just get on a plane and come through ellis island or angel island or wherever into any other country and just say, okay, well, we're going to settle here now. That had been over, I think, in the 1910s or the 1920s, right, like before the Great Depression. So you have all these people who weren't allowed to leave, but they're being told that they have, that they don't have the freedom to really do anything in their own country, even though they have, like, financial security. So even if they have, I mean, even amongst like the wealthier populations of the non-Aryans, they're still not allowed to like buy their way into any of this stuff. Like they can't, they're not allowed into the club, so to speak. And the same thing happened in the Jim Crow South. And that's another thing that the Nazis pulled from the Jim Crow South, right? Is that within the Jim Crow South, they're trying to stop the Great Migration, which again is happening concurrently. So it's happening at the same time. You have a bunch of black Southerners who were like, you know what? You don't want us here. You're not letting us have the jobs we want. You're not giving us access to education. We don't have any equality or equity. So we're going to leave. But the same thing happens. They're being stopped by like police officers and other white people from leaving the South. Because again, they need them to work and be excluded to make the whole system work. And in that same way, the Nazis needed the non-Aryans to be providing for the economy and then robbing them of their contributions so they could fund life for the Aryans. And some things I think people don't really understand about the time period before, because most of us have studied you know, the Holocaust in class, but not really so much of the conditions that happened you know, from 1923 until 1941 when the United States stopped practicing isolationism and got involved in Germany. But, you know, you have these people who were being slowly pushed out of their own country. So it is a little different in the case that, like, the United States, once slavery was over, they just put into place all these rules, right? So people hadn't had full freedom and then lost it again. These people in Europe and in Germany in this case, they were not abject from discrimination, right? We understand that. It's not like it was some perfect utopia where nobody cared if you were Jewish or nobody cared if you were black or nobody cared, you know, if you were other abled disabled, if you were gay or lesbian, like those people still were marginalized in German society, but they were still able to have full access of citizenship. So because they were citizens 
of Germany. They had already had those freedoms until, you know, starting in the early 20s, when you have people who are saying, well, we should exclude people based on these things. And then we should exclude people based on these things. And we should include, we should include this group too. So by the time you get into the mid thirties and into the late thirties, where you're like, wow, this person who we've elected, and well, I mean, they gave Hitler like the, um, they made him, I think the chancellor because he did run for president and he lost. Um, but they did give him a, they gave him a political position, but within 52 days, like he basically took over. And so when you have somebody who you realize, oh my God, <laughs> this has gone way too far. This is way more than we thought it was going to be. It's too late because there's nothing you can do to stop it. And it's the same thing in the Jim Crow South, right? Like, I mean, of course there weren't people, there were people who were fighting against it, but you didn't have enough people from the dominant class who were willing to lose out on the privileges they were getting by the exclusion of others. And that's one of the things I've talked about on the podcast before, as it relates to modern day, you have a lot of people who, you know, they say that they want change, but they're not willing to give up the comforts and the access that they have. And today you'd hear people say, you know, try to use the term reverse racism. Oh, well, that's just reverse racism. And I mentioned that about what was going on recently in Mexico with some of the racism that is going on in Mexico City. But it's the same thing. It's like, it's no, it's not reverse. It's just, it's not centered around you anymore. So a lot of people don't want to give the access that they have up for other people because they rely on that access for their livelihoods. And it was the same thing then. You had people that by the time they realized, I don't want to go along with this anymore. This isn't right. I can't keep justifying doing these things. It was like, well, okay, but you know, the German Third Reich is paying for me to go on two vacations a year with money that's being confiscated from these non-Aryan groups. Okay, fine. You know, I don't agree with what's going on, and I can see that there's a concentration camp built, you know, a couple miles down, and it's raining ash on me, and like I know that this isn't like you know, just regular ash. This is human remains. However, I have a job and I remember what it was like when I didn't have a job or when my parents didn't have money for bread. So, you know what? I don't agree with what's going on, but who am I to stop it? Right. I mean, like it's going to get in the way of me feeding my kids. So it's a lot of the same cowardice then and now and within multiple groups of people. They know that it's wrong, but they are benefiting from the system in place the way that it is. And when it comes to marriage and then the family structure, it's, it's actually more so in line. So the Nazis, some of you know, had basically outlawed interracial sex. They had outlawed inter... I'll say like inter-ethnic sex and marriage. So non-Aryans were no longer allowed to have sex with or marry or, you know, create children with Aryans. Now, in the case of the U.S., it's much the same thing. What I mean by that is, is that the first colony in what will become the United States was Jamestown in 1619. So, in the 1600s, in the early 1600s, and in the early decades of the American colonies in what became the United States, interracial marriage was legal because once you were free and you were a citizen, you could marry and have children with whoever you wanted. But what actually is in a pretty good example is that you have somebody at the time, and let's see, when was this? This was in the 1600s. And I'm trying to remember what year it was. 
it was in 1630. So in 1630, you had somebody named Hugh Davis, who was a white man, and he married an African woman. And so he was beaten because they thought of himself as having abused the dishonor of basically like whiteness by lying with a Negro. That's what I mean. The quote is that he abused himself to the dishonor of God and the shame of Christians by defiling his body in lying with a Negro on quote. So the Virginia assembly, the Virginia general assembly in 1630 beat him in front of everybody. They made people come out and watch this and witness. And basically to say that, you know, we don't condone interracial marriages. And then 10 years later, there was another white man named Robert Sweet, and he was forced to do penance because he enslaved and and he excuse me he got an enslaved black woman pregnant who belonged to another black man and so those of you who are familiar with the system of slavery in many of the colonies but in this case the united states these men were generally able to get away with impregnating their property quote-unquote because it just made them more money so people sort of turned a blind eye to these plantation owners who were having kids with their enslaved women because they were like oh well i'm doing it to increase my profits and because it saves me money from having to buy another, you know, slave myself. But in this case, these people are forming relationships with these women. And that is why they're punished because the idea is that they have soiled their pure ethnic DNA, their whiteness, their Europeanness by, you know, having a relationship with a black woman and having sex in the bounds of a mutual relationship as opposed to just having sex as a means to increase your profits or to exercise your rights, quote unquote, as a man from the dominant caste in society at that time. Now, when it comes to Nazi Germany, they have the same issue, right? Because they had, a, I think they begun to allow interracial marriage between whites and blacks sometime in a few, I think it was a few years after World War I was over. But now they're saying that you can't do it anymore. And they had people who were Jewish who had married in with people who were, you know, non-Jews. They had said, oh, you can't do that anymore. So it's kind of the same thing in that respect because both colonizing forces and both, you know, regimes of trying to establish caste within a system where people have been allowed to do what they want are heavily punishing the people who used to have that freedom or used to having that freedom and are now being told, oh, nope, you can't do this anymore. We need to heavily punish you to discourage other people to um, from also wanting to do it and to exercise the freedom that they've always had up until this point. So up until, you know, I think, well, for Virginia, they formally outlawed in 1691. But again, it was still sort of frowned upon in the 1630s, like the example I gave, because they punished people who did it, but they didn't have like a formal law in the book saying that you cannot do it or you can go to like prison for the rest of your life, etc. Same thing with the Nazis. They had already had within Germany and the German territories, they had already made interracial marriage legal. And the children who came from those unions, these mixed race children, they had established their citizenship already. It was you know legal that they were born. They weren't considered illegals, but now they are considered illegals. And now, you know, they're seen as the outcasts that should be forcibly sterilized. And I talked about that in a previous podcast, Hitler's Black Victims, if you haven't heard that one. 
And one other thing I'll say about this is that there was a Gallup poll in 1958, and it found that 94% of white Americans disapproved of inter excuse me disapproved of interracial marriage because they thought of the Negro race, as they put it, like the black people, as inferior to them mentally. So they thought of us all as mentally inferior. And these pseudoscientists, these eugenicists of the time, said that basically, if a white person was having children with somebody who was black he was you know tainting his gene pool that his children were going to have all these abnormalities and all these like you know not have sound mental function because they've laid down with these people who cannot function equal equivalent to whites and who are not capable of doing that even if they wanted to and you know 1958 may seem like a long time ago (laughs) but it's not because my mom was three when that poll happened and so, of course, even though we know that federally speaking, interracial marriage in the U.S. became legal in 1967, um, there were still people who believed that it was inferior. And that I was actually something some of you may know that was just um, they were talking about it on, I think, the House floor, because I know that like Mitch McConnell voted against protecting interracial marriage like it was about protecting same sex and interracial marriage and i know some people might be thinking like well his wife's asian right but again that's a whole nother thing right this whole model minority trope and about how many of these people don't think of asians and specific groups of asians right as people of color like people who are in white high society don't always think of Asians, specific Asians as people of color, which is why they haven't made them. I mean, systemically they have gone through a lot of the same things, but that they don't have the same barriers today at an institutional level when it comes to like the, the wage gap and the education gap and things like that. And I say certain groups because, of course, we know that Southeast Asians, like from Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, they have a completely opposite experience numerically in the country. And when you look at the things that the Southeast Asian populations have had to deal with in this country with regard to discrimination, it, it differs from more Northern Asian groups who've also immigrated to the country. So I just wanted to like throw that in just to be clear. Um, Maybe I'll do a podcast about that later also, but I just wanted to add that in real quick. But the fact that, you know, you have people today who are even still saying, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't protect interracial marriage. This is something that would affect a lot of people. And not only just the marriage unions themselves, but also the children that are born from those unions. Because like we know from American history, you know, you included, like you know from previous podcasts that once they outlawed these things in the 1600s in the United States they basically made the mixed race populations non-citizens like they took their citizenship away because now they're illegal even though again when they were born it was legal so that's a whole nother thing it's really sad that it's still in 2022 that's still a thing and that people could vote to not protect that especially people who are not necessarily married to other white people but it's the reality of the it's the reality of the situation we live in it's the reality of the country that we find ourselves in right now so i've been doing a lot of talking about this um i just want to say that There is a lot of great scholarship about this. I have talked about many of these points and otherwise in previous podcasts. A book that I'm currently reading right now is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, and it's a really, really, really fabulous book. 
Um, if you're also interested, you know, you could always look up the Nazi influence as they research the Jim Crow South. This is this is all well documented stuff. Like we know that, you know, from their meeting records that this is exactly what they were talking about and this is what they wanted to do and that they were inspired by the not only the racism that was allowed to perpetuate in the United States against, you know, the non-desirables in this case like the black population, but also how the United States managed their reputation on the world stage and basically took no responsibility and didn't have to deal with any like world backlash for what they did. So I bring that up to say that, you know, the United States still sort of gets away with a lot of these things, right? The atrocities that are committed against people in our own country, because, you know, for whatever reason, we are still kind of hiding behind the fact that on paper, it's a democracy and everybody's equal and, you know, justice is blind and all these things. And it's like, but it's not happening in practice. So I hope you all have a fabulous rest of your day or evening. And I hope to see you in the next episode. Bye.